Hello, and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people, who are known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community. I'm Ellie Irons, Nature Lab's community science educator and lab manager. This year, I've also had the pleasure of serving as a water justice lab mentor. So today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we bring you a holiday special all about Water Justice Lab. This youth-focused water testing program and community science initiative is a collaboration with Riverkeeper, a nonprofit environmental organization dedicated to the protection of the Hudson River and its tributaries. Since Water Justice Lab's founding in 2020, youth fellows drawn from local public high schools have been core to the project. They meet at Nature Lab monthly to test water samples taken from all over the Upper Hudson, from right here in Troy up to the current day Newcomb, New York, near the headwaters. Fellows work in our community biolab to test these river water samples to see if they contain sewage contamination, which could make the water dangerous for swimming and other types of recreation that involve direct contact. In addition to this essential lab work, fellows also integrate their concerns and interests around environmental justice, water infrastructure, and habitat restoration by participating in and producing radio pieces on these topics. Over the next hour, we'll hear five pieces recorded by our youth fellows over the past three years of the program. First, you'll hear founding Water Justice Lab fellows and Lansingburg High School students Genesis Cooper, Shanzanique Pollock, and Gabby Espada talk with HMM producer Aaron Blanding, who was an amazing college intern here at the Sanctuary in 2020. Genesis, Shanzanique, and Gabby speak with Aaron about their roles in fighting for water justice for everyone and everything. This is Aaron Blanding, and today I'm talking with the Water Justice Youth about their work and uh, these interesting times that we're living in. So thanks for joining me today, you guys. Thank you for having thanks. us. Yeah. So I'm wondering, just to get started, if we could have like intros, you guys tell me your name, uh, maybe what grade you're in, and what got you into this work. Starting off with me, my name is Genesis Cooper. Um, I am 14 years old, and I'm going into the ninth grade. What got me interested in water justice was doing work at the sanctuary in the summer of 2019. And then Miss Branda, who is one of the coordinators of Water Justice, she like got me into the program and told me all of the things about it. And I have a big interest in science, so I've just joined. Nice. I'm Gabby. I'm the youngest at 13 years old. I'm going to be a freshman. And I joined the Youth Justice program because it's I'm very interested in marine biology and I hope to pursue it when I go to college. My name is uh, Shantanique Pollock. I am how old am I? 15 years old <laughs> and I am going into the 10th grade. I got into water justice because Genesis like introduced me into it and I've always kind of been into investigating stuff and researching and mostly science in general so I thought it would be a really cool idea to join. Awesome that's really cool and so you know I'm wondering if you could just tell everyone listening about just a little bit about the Water Justice Lab and what each of you are doing with the project. Um, so for all of us really 
we're, <laughs> we're basically researching different things about the Hudson River's water quality and how it can affect the people that live around it. Um, I mostly focus around the animals that live around it. I focus on, when I try to do interviews, I try to focus on people who affect, I guess you could say, the river's quality. So like landfill workers Mm. or just like random people around the neighborhood, maybe people who have a program for water justice similar to ours. For me, I mostly focus on the sewage pollution and things that can easily come from like runoff into the river. So whenever I go into an interview, they'll mostly be about how to fix the sewage and the overflows, mostly. Gotcha. Well, that it's really cool to hear you talk about because this is really important work. In the larger, you know, in the grand scheme of things, water justice is really, really important. And I'm wondering, um, what does water justice mean to each of you guys? I believe, I said this earlier, um, water justice is really just like in the name. It's like we focus, our base is water, and then the justice part of it is where we try to get justice for all people who are affected by water, people and animals and plants. (laughs) It's just like justice for everybody, and the base is just water. Water justice is important because... Um, well, we need water to survive. And if, like, we didn't have clean water, then there would be health issues on top of health issues. And eventually, there would be no more water. For me, water justice is important because environmental things like water and even air and other things that we use to survive should be simple, like, necessities that we shouldn't have a problem with but are. So I think that, like, one of, like, pretty much the mission of it is to make it so we no longer have to worry about things that should have been, like, clean and, like, available to everyone since the beginning. So you guys are working on this during a very uh, interesting time in our history and pretty, pretty awful in terms of, you know, just some of the things that are happening. And I'm just wondering... If you guys could talk about maybe how you guys see your work with water justice tying into like the grand scheme of like, you know, maybe COVID or black, the Black Lives Matter movement that's, you know, seen a recent resurgence. So, well, I think that water justice ties into the Black Lives Matter movement with the sense of environmental racism and how different areas like based on their income or based on who the majority races in that said area, they can have different water quality. And it's not like that for every single neighborhood that has minorities, but it is like that for a good portion. So it just adds to another thing that the Black Lives Matter movement could be fighting for more than just police brutality, but it could also be the health effects with environmental racism. And another thing is like finding common ground, like both the Black Lives Matter movement and the Water Justice Lab want to fight for equality for all and making the world a better place, whether that be with um, having a healthy water system or um, 
all races having equal rights or being treated the same. So just in the sense of finding common ground could be another way that they related. Uh, for about like the COVID issues that are going on, how the COVID situation and water justice kind of linked together is like people's health, which also Genesis and Gabby added on to with the Black Lives Matter movement. But pretty much with water, if it's unclean and dirty and people are still drinking out of it and going into it, your health will definitely be affected and it shouldn't. Water shouldn't be something that can make you sick when it could easily be avoided. Gotcha. Yeah, that's, that's, those are some really good points. And so, you know, you kind of already touched on this a, a little bit earlier, but, you know, just a little more explicitly, um, what, would you share your thoughts on what environmental equity for all means and, you know, what it might look like? Environmental equity for all is, like I said earlier, where it's like equality in water quality when it comes to animals, plants, and humans because animals need water just as much as humans do. Plants need water just as much as animals do. Every life form on earth needs water. So when all of us have good water, good clean, healthy drinking and washing water, cooking water, it is beneficial to everybody and it helps with health um, it can also help with the economy because then there's not as many plumbing issues that happen with people's water. So people aren't spending as much to get their water fixed. So if we all just work together and try to make our water clean for every single being on earth, it will reach true water equity. And it's kind of adding on to what Genesis said, it could also be the fact of, like, like she said, all living things need uh, water to survive, but water should be something that gives people strength instead of ruining their health and taking people down slowly. And we shouldn't have to be like, people shouldn't be so clueless about their own water system, like where what they throw away goes or where or how what steam factories are using. Because air pollution and water pollution are all very big problems. So they could very well just end the human race altogether if it continues. So that's a really big problem. Adding on to what Gabby said for like how water can slowly like kill people. I think that it, everyone should have access to water, but also this water should be clean. Like how some water drains and like water access people have are extremely dirty and unclean. But if you go a little bit more upstream, it'll be cleaner and more healthy. So I'm thinking that all water should be more healthy and drinkable and swimmable and all the animals in it should be healthy as well. Gotcha. Yeah, that's, that's a really important distinction to make. And uh, 
it's really awesome work you guys are doing and really inspiring. This has been Aaron Blanding and I've talked with the Water Justice crew today about, you know, their work and water justice in general. And thanks for tuning in. Wow, it's really great to hear from our Water Justice fellows back in the first year of the program. And Erin did such great interviews as part of her People's Science series. Check out the rest of them from that year if you haven't heard them yet. Over the past two years, Shanzanique and Genesis have continued on as fellows, and in May 2020, we are excited to add two more youth fellows to our group, Musabil Moat and Henry Kimball, both students at Troy High. In the upcoming segments, you'll hear about the adventures of these four youth fellows had as they participated in our summer intensive program, Sourced Estuary, Water Justice Summer Camp. Our first piece is from back in mid-July, when the weather was balmy and youth fellows headed out to Otter Creek and waded right in. You'll hear youth fellow Musabil Moat document his experience doing stream sampling with mentor Douglas Reed. This summer, youth fellows with the Media Sanctuary's Water Justice Lab have been visiting streams around the capital region to sample macroinvertebrate life, basically small insects and other invertebrates like crayfish that live at least part of their life in streams. We've learned that these organisms are important ecological indicators. Finding certain species in certain places can tell us lots about the health of a stream. We've learned that finding mayflies and stoneflies and even a kind of scary looking creature called a helgramite means the stream ecosystem is pretty healthy. Over the next 10 minutes, you'll hear ambient audio from our stream sampling trips recorded by youth fellow Musamil Moat, as well as a series of interviews Musamil did with our invertebrate sampling mentor over a period of a few weeks. We'll start with the sounds of Otter Creek, a tributary to the Tumhannock, which we've explored as part of our drinking water supply here in Troy followed by the sounds of the Winanskill Creek just before it enters the Hudson at the site where our water justice mentor Megan Lung introduced us to a Department of Environmental Conservation dam removal project. out looking inside see if you find anything alive there I'm Doug Reed and I'm a volunteer with Riverkeeper and the water justice lab today thanks as part of source to estuary water justice summer camp we're meeting and learning from experts about different aspects of our water system what kind of water knowledge are you sharing with us I'm sharing the uh, macroinvertebrate insect life on the bottom of the streams with you guys at uh, Otter Creek, which is not too far from here. Thanks. What is your, what is your work life on a day-to-day -day basis? Well, my work life now is pretty much at home. I'm retired, but when I worked in the water field, it was day-to-day -day visiting high schools and taking groups with teachers and and students out to sites like today on Otter Creek all around the Hudson River watershed. We would teach chemistry and physical site assessment and the macroinvertebrate sampling. Thanks. 
There are a lot of ways to describe water justice. At the Water Justice Lab, one way we describe it, it is a movement to understand and advocate for equitable access to clean, healthy waterways and water systems. Can you make any connections between what you do and water justice? Absolutely. Teaching children from the youngest age, elementary school, what it's like to be an insect in the bottom of the river needing clean water is a great way to show from a very young age that clean water is important, not just for drinking, but for the life of the insects and the birds and the fish that use the water first before we ever get to drink it. Anything else our listeners should know? Save your streams and be aware of as much as you can of the life that is in the water and in the air and in the forest. It's a wonderful education. Thank you, Douglas. What a cool sculpture. I mean, I just yeah. think about those guys with that exoskeleton, right? Yeah. They got that, like, Incredible. their bones are on the outside. It's just really amazing. Hi, Doug Reed. Welcome back to um for another interview. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, thanks. What difference do you find between the both creeks we have we have is visited? Otter Creek up in Tom Hannock. Yeah, it was a couple of weeks ago, and this is Winanskill Creek in South Troy. This is a much more industrial-looking creek. It's right next to the river. There's a lot of construction noise. We had to park in a construction lot, and the stream has been hammered with industry for probably 150 years. The Otter Creek was a pristine, flowing, clean water stream going into Troy's water supply, Tom Hanna Creek, so drastic difference. And do you think the water at this creek is being damaged? The water is being used by a lot of people from the headwaters 10 or 15 miles up in here. I don't know what, you know, where it's going through, but it's going through a lot of uh, neighborhoods, streets, going under streets. And there's the Hudson. This has been a, you know, a historic industrial site. It's all over now, and we can hear them uh, fixing it, I guess. So this water, judging by the invertebrate life we collected, is okay. But, you know, it's obviously cloudier, warmer than the Otter Creek a couple of weeks ago. Um, it's, it's amazing how resilient nature is. But yeah, this is a much more impacted stream, as they call it. Do you think this um, stream is missing some few things? 
Well, yeah. I mean, Megan talked about missing some alewives that used to uh, swim up here in the spring. And the eels, well, we saw, found one eel. I think, you know, way back in 1600, this stream was teeming with biological life. And the trees were probably completely covering it so there wouldn't be any sun in here. Uh, and there wouldn't be pipes and bridges. And, um, yeah, it would be a lot cleaner. And I got one more question for today. Do you think in the future this stream will be a lot better and more like the um, creek that we visited before this one? Yeah, I do. And you know why? Because you're here. Anybody who comes to a stream, especially at your age or even younger, is going to take care of it in the future. They're not going to throw junk in it. That's, that's why I think it's going to get better. Yeah. Thank you guys for coming here and doing this. Thanks, Doug. You're welcome as well. Pick it up and look for anything moving right away. They chose anything moving? Yeah, there's something yeah. moving. Yeah. yeah, we got some. Mm -hmm. little then, mayfly uh, or something? We will. Put it right in that bucket. And do that. Henry, you do that, and Nikki. And we'll see what we have from that by spreading it out in these trays. Get in there. <laughs> we'll pour all the water through the sieve, and that will get the insects free of all the debris. All right. Okay. That was Water Justice Lab Youth Fellow Muzamil Moat interviewing mentor Doug Reed. In this chilly November weather, it's such a delight to relive those moments spent along our urban or rural streams in the shade of tall trees and in such good company. For those just tuning in, you're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, W-O-O-S-L-P 98.9 FM Schenectady and W-O-O-A-L-P 106.9 FM Albany and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend. Find this special and more at mediasanctuary.org. For our next piece, we'll jump forward to August 3rd, 2022 when Water Justice Lab Youth Fellows combined research on water justice and indigenous sovereignty by learning about and visiting Popscani Island. For week five of Source to Estuary Water Justice Summer Camp, 
Water Justice Lab Youth Fellows learned about the history and contemporary status of Popscani Island, a nature preserve south of the current-day town of Rensselaer. Formerly owned by the Open Space Institute, in 2021, the preserve was returned to the Stockbridge-Munsee community, who are descendants of the Mohican people whose traditional homelands extend north and south along the Hudson River in current-day New York, Vermont, Massachusetts, and Connecticut. The water sounds and reflections you'll hear in this piece were recorded by youth fellows during a field trip to the island. We visited the island shortly after holding a conversation with Sherry White of the Stockbridge-Munsee Historic Preservation Office. Drawing on over 20 years of experience in historic preservation, Sherry called in from the tribe's offices in Wisconsin to answer our questions about the history of the island, the archaeological work that has taken place there, and the ongoing connection the Stockbridge-Munsee community has to the land and the creatures who live there. Youth fellows shared the work they've been doing tracing our local water systems and sampling the macroinvertebrates and other creatures who call them home. In the first part of our conversation with Sherry, you'll hear her describing the process of making the island eligible for the National Register of Historic Places, an important step towards protecting it from development. Sherry White, and I am Mohican, I'm a road member, and I'm also an Anatomy Indian. And I've been working in historic preservation for over 20 years. I worked on Papskini Island during those 20 years, and then I retired, and uh, now the tribe is working to get our land that we own on Papskini Island on the National Register. So um, I came back to help do that. Say like I think it was in 2009, and we had the whole island listed as eligible for the National Register. So what that does is it helps us when federal agencies or people are trying to do a project on Papskini Island, it kind of gives us a little bit more protection. It doesn't actually stop a project, but it makes these agencies have to do a few more steps so that we have some teeth into trying to protect what's what we're concerned with on the island. So for us that would be artifacts, our sacred sites, or ceremonial sites that are in the ground that could possibly be disturbed by the project. The reason why we only had it listed as eligible back in 2009 is because in order to actually get it on the register, you have to have everybody who owns land sign off on that. Well, and we knew that wouldn't be a possibility. Um, there's private people that have companies there and homes. So by doing it just as eligible, we didn't have to have all those signatures. So now, because the institute gave us land back on the island, we actually own it. So we can have that portion listed as eligible, which will help us in protecting it. There's always somebody who's trying to do a project there, you know, because it's, it's open space, the south end of the island, so they wouldn't have to be, you know, tearing houses down or other developments, and it's on the Hudson River, so it's, a very appealing area for people to build. 
So over the 20 years that I've worked there, we've had uh, people trying to start a marina, the federal and state highway department trying to put a bridge over there. We've had people trying to set up solar panels there. My main concern with the with the marina going in there is, you know, like once you get something like the marina and then somebody else is like, oh, well, let's put a gas station here, let's put hotels here. So it just keeps going, you know, more and more. So uh, we came up with the idea to get it listed as eligible just to help us protect it. It doesn't stop the project, it just gives them more hoops that they have to jump through. We're trying to keep the land just as it is right now, not to have any more building on there. Well, and when you think that when the Mohican people lived along the Hudson River, we were all the way from Vermont down, you know, into Manhattan all along. And actually, that's one of the criteria when you list something as eligible for the National Register. There's criteria that you have to meet in order to do that. Usually, the sites only meet one of the criteria, but Hatskany Island met three of them. And one of them is that our state who the island was named after, would have to be able to go back there and recognize it as he did when he lived there. So now we have, we still have the open cornfield, squash fields, we have the ponds where the turtles are on the south end of the island. So the huge cornfield is really known as one of the oldest agricultural fields of the United States. So it was corn back when we lived there and it's still corn to this day. There's also squash fields out there. So it's really kind of unique. Like if you start at the north end of the island, it's so disturbed to have those big oil um, containers and the oil company. And then as you go down the road, you get to the south end of the island where it's not been developed at all. So that's like our main area where we're really focused on is keeping that family and keeping the cornfields and the squash fields growing. And of course the pond, because you know a lot of times when federal agencies do a project, they'll fill in the wetland. So we are really trying to keep those ponds and the turtles there, because turtles are very important to the Wilmington tribe. A lot of times in the builder, the turtles are just laying out in the sun and sunning <laughs> themselves. And what, we have clan system, and one of our clans is the turtle. And so if our tribal seal, you'll see there's it in our, our seal. Originally as Delaware people, we believe like the earth came from the back of the turtle. The turtle root rose out of the ground and a tree grew. And once the tree grew, it bent over and another tree grew. So that was the beginning of our life with the turtle coming out of the water. And the turtle also takes care of us, like they use the shell for a bowl or a spoon. So not only did it bring us life, but it helps us sustain life. Very, very good to still have that there. And that's one thing that when the bridge project was going to go there, it would have disturbed that pond and those fields. So that's, um, we're so far, we're happy we've been able to keep that project from moving forward. You know, water quality is always for us when we live there. And of course, nowadays, 
um, just trying to get fresh water for everybody is an issue. You know, one thing for us is, you know, like, again, keeping that pond and not allowing things that are in the water or building projects that will pollute the water. So it, even like the animals that live in the water that the turtles need to live off of are the, the vegetation. Um, and a lot of times we just think about just the water, but we don't think about the vegetation in it that helps keep the water healthy or feeds the other animals in the water. So it's not just about drinking it. Well, I'm you know glad to hear what your students are doing because that's such an important part of our life. Water, I mean, it's, you know, in so many ways. Like I said, not just drinking, but um, you know, preserving the fish and the, the wildlife that's in the water. Like. More like a beach, uh, as you can see just now, the water was like hitting hard coming like from the shore. And then you see all these rocks. I, it's a lot cleaner than the one we interact with for sampling. Like just the look and the smell of it. It's just more like calm, the environment. Like, cause ours is more like closer to the city. But since this is more like natural, there isn't much like, you know, like docks or anything like that. It just looks better. No trash, so the water looks so clear. And like, it doesn't have a smell to it either. Oh, you got, you got mud. That was Water Justice Lab in conversation with Sherry White of the Stockbridge-Munsee Historic Preservation Office as part of Sourced Estuary Water Justice Summer Camp. Our next piece comes from August 10, 2022, when Water Justice Lab youth fellows visited the Rensselaer County Wastewater Treatment Plant and youth fellow Musamil Moat interviewed plant operator Charles Remington. Oh. <laughs> I know, smell, right? We work with the water. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> As part of Nature Lab's ongoing Sourced Estuary Water Justice Summer Camp program, youth fellows have been learning about and visiting water infrastructure and habitats in and around the capital region. Week 7 of Sourced Estuary found us tracing our wastewater out of the sewer system and four miles south along the Hudson River, where it gets treated at the Rensselaer County Wastewater Treatment Plant. Youth fellows recorded the ambient sounds of the water treatment process and interviewed our tour guide about plant operations. This is Muzamil Moat and I'm a Water Justice Lab youth fellow. And today I'm with... Charles Remington. Nice to meet you, Charles. Can you describe where we are right now? Yeah, we're at a Rensselaer County Wastewater Treatment Plant. So I think we'll probably just start right where the water comes in and just work our way to where the water goes out. I, it's all in a line, so it'll be kind of easy. Sounds great. First, as the wastewater enters the plant, it's tested at the treatment plants lab. This is our uh, certified lab. This is just this is a test that we do as operators. Uh, every four hours, we grab grab samples. This is the water coming in the plant, and that's that's it going out. We obviously. Uh, Clear it up pretty good. 
Next, objects like rags, wet wipes, trash, leaves, branches get strained out by a machine called a bar screen. But this is where all the water, we have five pump stations. Uh, from So the houses are all gravity fed into the pump stations. The pump stations physically pump the water to here. Water comes in here. We have two bar screens. This is just, actually I can show you how it works. Then water goes into large holding tanks where smaller stuff like settlement settles down to the bottom of large holding tanks. Grease and other small stuff that floats get strained off the top. So this is called the pre-aeration channel. Uh, those two green blowers, I don't know if you noticed when you were coming up the stairs, they were to your left, kind of noisy. That's what's pumping the air in here. Just keeping the wastewater fresh. Uh, spread it out and then it uh, from here it goes into these primary tanks so what it's doing is the bottom flights anything that comes in here that's going to settle uh, just by sedimentation gravity nothing by uh, you know just just gravity uh, it's going to settle out it's going to pull it this way and underneath our feet over here are primary pumps that are going to pump it a quarter of a mile all the way to the building way back there with the great big round uh, methane bubble on top so those primary pumps are going to pump everything that way. That's going to settle. On top, see how they're riding the top? That's going to push all the grease, everything that's going to float over here, and it's going to get caught in our, our grease traps. Whoa. So we send a lot of grease down the drain, I guess. Yeah, grease Fair is bit. very bad. You yeah. know, she works at a restaurant. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. It's disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> yep, exactly. So that, yeah, grease is a huge problem here. Next, this slightly cleaner water flows out over weirs like little dams and goes into aeration tanks. In the aeration tanks, big fans slosh it around to promote beneficial bacteria that break down the nutrients in the sewage. The water looks all brown and frothy at this point. After your primary treatment, uh, it's going to go into these weirs, which is going to continue down the line. Uh, this should have Basically, what's flowing over your weirs is going to have everything that gravity can pull out is going to be pulled out, and it's going to be pumped. So this is a uh, we need more treatment on this water, which is it's going to go that way, and we'll see what happens next. These are all the controls for the um, aeration tanks. So this is a huge, huge energy. It uses tons of energy. I don't know what the correct word would be. Um, yeah. So our next upgrade, we're going to be going to like, word is we're going to be going to dissolve oxygen. It's like a membrane, it pumps oxygen up through, instead of these huge mixers. Next, the brown frothy stuff called sludge settles out in clarifying tanks. The sludge is full of bacteria. Some sludge is recycled back to the aeration tanks to break down the next round of wastewater. Um, this is uh, this is basically a, a settling tank as well. So after it's aerated, it's still yeah. got enough in it that I mean yeah, it looks well, brown. So. Right. Well, the bacteria was actually settling out the. Um, oh. Okay. Yeah. So the settled sludge we can decide what we want to do we can either waste it which is completely getting out of the system 
or we can return it to the back of the aeration. That's those goosenecks that we saw. Um, so we're doing it. We, we typically return about six million gallons a day. If you were to waste it all, you basically wasted all your bacteria, and you would have nothing to break down the sludge that's going to be in those tanks. So it's very important to keep a healthy bacteria population. So that's why we return. So the lab, the lab does the, uh, a lot of the tests to, to know how much we have to waste, how much we have to return. The sludge that isn't recycled gets sent to a digesting tank to be broken down without oxygen. This process makes methane, which is captured from the digester and used for powering machinery at the plant. We actually, we, we capture that methane instead of releasing it into the atmosphere and we use it to, uh, for our boilers, which heats, heats the digesters, and we use it for our dryer, the methane, so we capture it and use it instead of just releasing it. Yeah, and you all know methane's like super potent greenhouse gas. I mean, it goes away yeah. fast, but it mm -hmm. like, it really makes, so it's great they're doing this. Yeah. After it leaves the digester, the sludge is dried and powdered. It can be used as fertilizer, but it's hard to transport and apply. So the plant operators are experimenting with the different possibilities for using it. Finally, the remaining water from the clarifying tanks is treated with UV light. So we have two channels. We typically only use one unless we get high flows. Then we'll put two. Water runs through these, these banks of lights. A lot of cobwebs. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> the spiders this, don't mind. Yeah, this is your last step before you go out to the hustle. Okay. Yeah, you can see it glowing over there a little bit, huh? Yeah, yep. At this point, it's finally ready to be dumped back into the Hudson River at an outflow point at the southern end of the plant. More than one quarter mile south of where it entered the plant. This is the water that's going straight up to the Hudson. And our outfall is actually, see that sign facing away from us? Yep. It's actually piped out there. Nice to meet you, Charles. What kind of water knowledge did you share with us today? Well, I think we took a pretty good look at what comes in. Um, we learned about the, the process, uh, some of the treatment, and what the water looks like going out to the river. What is your work like on a day-to-day -day basis? So, a lot of my job is simply monitoring equipment. Um, we work 12-hour shifts. So a lot of that is just monitoring the SCADA system, which you guys saw earlier. We also do a lot of the belt pressing, the drying. Someone's constantly in those buildings. A lot of walking around, just sampling. You know, just every day, it's pretty routine, typically. Can you make any connections between what you do and water justice? Well, we make it so there's uh, virtually no fecal coliform at all in the water. Uh, we have it every, every day. 
uh, we bring a test over our sample over to Albany County Sewer District. They have a, a certified lab as well that can that can do these, um, and that goes directly to New York State. We passed out with flying colors, so we're doing something right. And I got one more question for you. Yep. How does this area impact the animals that come around? Well, like I said, in the springtime you see lots of wildlife. All the babies around the clarifiers, the geese and the ducks. I'm sure it does impact it. You know what I mean? There's, <laughs> it could be all woods. So I'm sure, I'm sure it's impacted somewhat. But I don't think it's too detrimental, to be honest with you. With most of the wildlife. Yeah, all, in the wintertime, you'll see deer here all the time. We've seen, we've seen all sorts of wildlife down here, honestly. Well, thank you, Charles. Nice meeting you. All right, thank you. That was Water Justice Lab fellow Musa Milmote interviewing wastewater treatment plant operator Charles Remington during Sourced Estuary Water Justice Summer Camp. For our final piece in this Hudson Mohawk Magazine holiday special, our Water Justice Lab youth fellows take us out on the Hudson River in a solar pontoon boat. You'll hear the sounds of the river and Musamil in conversation with Scott Kellogg of the Radix Ecological Sustainability Center. What's well, number one? Let's get life jackets on. Yeah, step on board. I'm Musamil Moat. I'm a Water Justice Lab Youth Fellow, and I'm speaking with Scott Kellogg. Hi, Scott. Can you introduce yourself and describe where we are right now? Sure. My name's Scott Kellogg. I'm the Educational Director at the Radix Ecological Sustainability Center, and we are standing on the docks of the Albany Rowing Club in the Hudson River along the shoreline of Albany, New York. Thanks. As part of Source to Estuary, Water Justice Summer Camp, we're meeting and learning from experts about different aspects of our water system. What kind of water knowledge are you sharing with us? Well, today we went out on the Hudson River and talked about its history, about its ecology. We looked at how human infrastructure interacts with the river, particularly around sewers and where they discharge into the river. And then we went and looked at artificial floating islands and talked about simple ways that city residents can take action to improve the quality of the water that they live nearby. What is your work like on a day-to-day basis? Day-to-day basis, I work at the Rowdy Ecological Sustainability Center, a lot of education, a lot of management, and running programs for local youth and adults, teaching them about how to have greater local access and control over food, water, waste management, energy production, and teaching ecological literacy in general. Does Radix do other work that is related to water justice? A lot of our focus, particularly this summer, has been about bringing local youth down to the Hudson River and the construction of artificial floating islands, and then very recently the construction of this solar power boat that we're intending to bring South End residents out onto the river and talk about this idea of water justice. In addition to that, we do a lot of advocacy for removing impervious covers like asphalt and concrete and trying to 
get more stormwater to absorb into the soils, which is going to improve the health of trees and plants and also reduce the likelihood of there being sewage overflows. Anything else? Is it anything else our listeners should know? This was a great first public tour, and I thank you all for coming, and uh, we're really excited to bring more groups out and learn about humans and waterways and how they can have mutually beneficial relationships. So thank you. Thank you, Scott. So, yeah. Well, welcome, everybody. This is um, will be the first public group to go on our solar-powered boat, which um, is so new that it doesn't even have a name yet. We got a grant from the DEC's Hudson River Estuary Program. One of the grant categories that they were offering money more was to build boats that would teach people about the river. One of the projects that we've been working on this summer, in years past, it's really just kind of been growing a little bit every year, is to build these things called artificial floating islands that we'll actually go check out, which are basically, um, well, they're floating islands with water plants, wetland plants attached to them. And we put them out in the river with the idea that they can help to uh, clean it up. That bacteria living on the roots of the plants and then the plants themselves can basically clean up water after you have sewage spill events like you've been talking about right or just all the time like right because as you're learning there's a, a lot of potentially dangerous bacterial levels in the water all the time also just as a way to connect people to the river especially youth in Albany who have been cut off from it. I mean, we in Albany, I mean, you see right here, we built an interstate, 787, that runs all along the river. And there's really only a few places where you can actually get to the river, have more people learn about it, to, to learn that it's possible through simple actions to do something to actually improve the health of the river. Yeah, step on board. So you can use these railings behind you to hold on if you want to. Um, it doesn't really go that fast, so you really shouldn't need to. But I can um, raise the engine up if we want to go into shallower water. So, this is the train bridge. The impact just went over. So you can start seeing the, can you hear me? Like these um, pipes, these are these sewage discharge pipes. So most of Albany's shoreline is this, just this big concrete wall. 
which is where I really would love to, I would love to align it from one end of the next with floating islands, just to create habitat in what is otherwise absolute sterile wall that nothing can live on. There's so many living things that will live on islands. So much egg habitat that's created. I'm also always on the lookout for our, our floating island that went missing. Some are in much better shape than others. I'm always evolving my design um, and learning every time. So what these are made of, you have this, this black piping going around it and we ended up using um, like pool noodles as um, the thing to stuff inside that tube and, and give it buoyancy. And then you sort of see that, that netting material that's on the inside. That's called coir, and it's made out of shredded coconut, and that gave us something to actually plant the plants in that they could take root in, which you see happening in certain places. And, and speaking of like biological indicators, when I pulled these in last year, I was stunned by the amount living things in the war. Um, a lot of the species you mentioned, like, I know you don't like bugs, but um, little uh, shrimp-like creatures and all sorts of aquatic insects. You know, and they try and also look at, you know, what is the native vegetation here that is already growing? And I think this is um, the tricky riparian zone, You because mo you mostly have, like, trees coming right down to the waterline. We don't have much of a wetland buffer anywhere along the Hudson and I think that might just be due to the amount of wave action. Yeah, because they've channelized it and it doesn't flood, yeah. it's just going to be constantly bombarded. Right. That that maybe if there were, you know, islands with more protected areas with more inlets that you might have more sort of lower energy wetland habitats. So it's kind of like maybe a hunt to find some of those and see what's growing there. See what's growing. Yeah. And you know even if uh, I, I say like a lot of its value is symbolic and educational right I mean look at this river I mean I think about the millions of gallons of sewage that are entering it uh, you know it's having a, a pretty negligible impact on water quality Right, but just by, especially bringing local youth down and, and showing them that you can take simple actions to, to have some impact. You know, the river, we still, there's still a lot of work to do, right, before it's uh, really clean, but I think it's also encouraging to know it's gotten a lot better. You talk to people who've been, you know, fishing down here for 30 years and they're like, well, you should have seen it back then. It was so much worse. Before the Clean Water Act was passed that auto paint companies dumping paint into the river. They, you know what color they're painting the cars that day because the river would turn that color. So it has gotten better. 
there's more work to be done, but I think it's it's really important to know that the river is healing, and um, now's the time to, to really push, to, to reconnect people to it. That was Water Justice Lab Youth Fellows out on the Hudson River with Scott Kellogg of the Radix Ecological Sustainability Center. And that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this special episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Ellie Irons, and it's been a delight recalling those warm summer days on the water. I hope you enjoyed it too. Contributors to today's special holiday episode included Water Justice Lab Youth Fellows Muzumil Mote, Henry Kimball, Genesis Cooper, Shanzanique Pollock, Gabby Espada, and HMM producer Aaron Blanding. Hudson Mohawk Magazine covers stories of social and environmental justice produced by the community for the community and is supported by independent donations. If you value independent media, consider a gift of a monthly donation as a sanctuary sustainer by going to mediasanctuary.org. We want to hear from you. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Media Sanctuary, or send us an email to hmm at mediasanctuary.org. You can tune in weekdays at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear local news or stream Sanctuary Radio at mediasanctuary.org. Full episodes and individual stories are available on demand, on our website, and on your favorite podcast platform. We appreciate you listening. Until next time.